I don't know if you knew this, but Sunday was the first day of Advent. And it didn't snow on Sunday, but it did snow on Tuesday, which tells you something about how God feels about Sunday versus Tuesdays. Um, <clears throat> and by that, I mean, he loves us because it's Advent. And if it were sunny and warm, it just wouldn't feel like the first Tuesday of Advent. It's gonna be sunny and warm tomorrow, but that's, that's fine. So everybody knows the best part about this season, about Christmas season, about Advent is, anybody? <laughs> I actually hadn't considered that. That is pretty good. Cookies, you're right. I was going to say the music, the songs. Um, when I think of Advent, when I think of Christmas time, I think of singing Silent Night uh, at our service together on Christmas Eve with candles lit and, and all other lights off and just hearing all of our voices and just seeing candles. It's one of my favorite moments of the year. Um, I look forward to it every year. I, I love Christmas carols. I think they're beautiful. Um, they're, they're this really interesting, they're like hymns. They're not vapid. They're, they're weighty, but they're also really joyful, which is a very hard thing to pull off in writing a song. Um, it's not just religious music either. Like Advent is one of this, this Christmas in general is this one of the only seasons, if not the only season that has its own music, which is really cool. Um, both secularly and religiously. Secularly, I hate that word. It's so hard to say and it's dumb. Uh, Non-religious music, everybody's favorite, All I Want for Christmas is You. No one's sick of hearing that or Baby It's Cold Outside, that aged really well. Or Jingle Bells, that's a, that's a classic. I learned a couple years ago that Jingle Bells is not a Christmas song. It's a Thanksgiving song, which is why Christmas is not mentioned in it one bit whatsoever. I don't know how it got thrown into Christmas, but it's about going to uh, someone's house for Thanksgiving. Now you know. Uh, Joy to the World is probably my favorite song, maybe ever, but certainly my favorite Christmas song, especially um, the version of it by a band called Future of Forestry, which if you've been around here the past 10 years, you've heard that song probably too many times. But uh, I have heard it and played it hundreds of times at this point, and I still get chills every time I hear it. Um, I love it. I love it so much. I love Christmas music. I'm very glad that the guys played a couple songs tonight. I've been bothering them saying like during Advent, I want to hear as much Christmas music as possible. And uh, they were nice enough to start doing that. Tonight, we're going to be looking at maybe what is maybe the first Christmas carol ever written. And this is Mary's Magnificat. It's not Magnify Cat, it's Magnificat. Latin, uh, Magnificat is Latin for magnify, which comes from the very first line of the song, which we'll see in a bit. But uh, a few bits of info about this song before we get into looking at it. Um, as I said, it's probably the first Christmas carol or song um, ever written. It has been part of the church's liturgy from the very beginning of the church. If you've been part of a liturgical tradition, this song from Mary is sang or read every night during evening prayers. Uh, it is the longest section of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament, which is pretty cool. Uh, in the last, this is something that I still find fascinating. In the last 200 years or so, uh, this section of scripture has been banned by at least three different governments for fear of its message leading to uprising and revolution and overthrowing those in power. That may strike you as strange. It did for me. Um, something that Mary said is, has been banned in several countries for being too dangerous, for being too revolutionary. Mary, 
I've always thought of Mary as being infinitely humble and, and sweet and strong, but, but like a picture of peace. I mean, you see Mary all the time holding like a baby or holding lambs. The way she's depicted feels very one-dimensional. But I have to say this song paints a very different picture or perhaps maybe a more complete picture of, of Mary. Uh, this is not all I want for Christmas is you. This is not jingle bells. This is not a watered down safe song of the season. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this about this song of Mary. He said, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest. One might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, t- gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. Instead, it is a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Wow. That is not what I was expecting. And I feel like it, uh, before, I, I had read this section of scripture hundreds of times. And until a couple of years ago, I felt like I had missed this my entire life. So let's, let's get into this. We are jumping into the middle of the story a little bit. Uh, so let me fill you in on what has happened up to this point. You're probably very familiar, but just hang with me. An angel has just shown up and informed Mary that she's going to give birth to God, <laughs> to God incarnate, even though she's a virgin. Um, and the angel also lets her know that her cousin Elizabeth is pregnant as well. They're going to be pregnant at the same time. If this news of her being miraculously pregnant herself isn't uh, mind-bending enough, uh, Elizabeth, her cousin, who she just told is also pregnant, is too old to have children and is also barren. So she has no business being pregnant, just like Mary has no business being pregnant. So Mary's just received some like life-altering <laughs> news for her and her cousin. And we're picking up right after Mary has had this conversation with this angel. So this is Luke chapter one, starting at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Zechariah is Elizabeth's father, or nope, husband. Yikes, husband. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. For he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. 
Did you hear that? Through this birth of Jesus, God is scattering the proud, toppling rulers, exalting the humble, feeding the hungry, and rejecting the rich. I think to fully understand the gravity of these words from Mary, we have to remember her situation. Her immediate future is tenuous and uncertain. As an unwed teenage peasant found to be pregnant, she faced devastating consequences. Um, She still hasn't told Joseph, as far as we know, um, and her life kind of hangs in the balance based on how he reacts to that news. Uh, He can divorce her quietly, which saves her public humiliation, but is still basically a death sentence. Or he can drag her before the authorities and have her stoned as an adulteress. This is not a song sung sweetly and peacefully. This is a song sung, I imagine, through tears and clenched teeth as as Mary is defiantly praising God. This is the Magnificat. And I want to focus tonight on the dangerous part of this song, the great reversals, the part of the song that has made those in power anxious and, and given courage to those under oppression. And that's when Mary says this, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. I think it's interesting to note that 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 section of Mary's words uh, sound a lot like Jesus's words later. In Luke 6, during his sermon on the plain, one of his most famous sermons, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. I think it's interesting to see some of this progression of thought from, from mother to son as Jesus gets older. Anyway, back to Mary's song. Uh, We have these two groups of, these two opposed groups, the proud, the powerful, and the rich against the humble, the powerless, the hungry, and poor. And if you don't read this carefully in the larger context of the Bible, it's easy to think that this message is watch out, those of you who are in power, those of you who are rich, your time is coming and the tables will turn. We will be the ones in power. You will be poor. We'll see how you like it then. That sounds like retribution and revenge and continuing the cycle of oppression, just switching the cast. When in truth, the humble birth and life and death of Jesus was not about swapping the oppressed and the oppressors, but about eradicating that entire cycle of oppression altogether. And so to that end, I see two different warnings to these two different groups of people. To the first group, the powerful, uh, the proud, the rich, God is saying your power is not uh, for you. God is not impressed by your pride or your power or your wealth or your status. He has mercy on those who follow him, who humble themselves, those who turn from self-serving accumulation of power and wealth towards self-denial for the sake of others. This is exactly what Jesus did. And this is what we're called to do. Um, Paul writes uh, 
this beautiful, maybe the first Christian hymn in Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages of the Bible that goes something like this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who God is. This is what God's power looks like. The infinite becoming an infant. And this is how we're called to use our power. That's the message to the first group. The message to the second group, to the humble, to the powerless, to the hungry and poor is similar. I believe God is saying, don't grasp for human power. Don't grasp for wealth. Don't grasp for control. They aren't your means to freedom. Don't try to continue this cycle. I have mercy on those who follow me. I see you. I'm on your side and I will have the last word. The world is not going to be made right through power and coercion, which may at best only temporarily change people's behavior. <laughs> Instead, the world is going to be made right through vulnerable love that actually changes hearts, that actually changes perceptions and actions away from self-centered living toward self-sacrificing love. The kind of self-sacrificing vulnerable love that we see in Christ that we just read about in Philippians 2, the kind of love that, that changes people. That is revolutionary. God's message to both these groups, the haves and the have-nots, is to reveal who he is. A God who acts through vulnerable love, not coercive power. A God who is close to the broken and vulnerable. A God who bursts into the world through failure and weakness and suffering. A God who chooses to enter the world through a poor peasant girl in an occupied and oppressed country a God who chooses to die in the most excruciating and humiliating way possible, being nailed to a piece of wood next to criminals on display for all to see. A God who acts in the midst of our suffering, who is always working to transform our suffering into joy. This is what God's power looks like, Jesus who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. The infinite became an infant. God's message through Mary to both these groups of people and his message to us tonight is simple. You can trust me with your power and with your suffering. And in both, you can choose vulnerable love, the kind of love that causes the powerless to sing hopeful and defiant songs of praise, 
the kind of love that, that recreates human hearts. You can choose self-sacrifice for the sake of others. We can join God in transforming suffering to joy. In various ways, we are people, those of us in this room, anyone hearing my voice, we are all in both of these groups. We all have wounds and sufferings in some areas, and we all have some power that we can use for the sake of others, which means we all have opportunities to both receive and create joy. So my question for us tonight is how can you join God in transforming suffering into joy this Advent? Maybe there's a relationship that you know that you need to reconcile. The holidays can be a really hard time for that. But maybe that means that you need to extend forgiveness or perhaps um, repentance to someone like we talked about last week. Maybe it's about celebrating someone who, who goes unappreciated or needs encouraged, who needs to not be alone during these cold, dark months. Maybe it's through acts of service, uh, of feeding the hungry, exalting the humble. We just spent an entire series focusing on how we grow and being intentional about choosing some specific way that we wanted to see growth before the end of the year. Is there a way for you to combine that area of growth uh, that you set out on during that last series with some external action to incite love or transform suffering to joy this Advent? Here's some real low-hanging fruit. Donate to our Christmas campaign. It's a very small first step. It, like, I heard someone laugh. It feels comical. <laughs> it feels um, self-promoting <laughs> almost, but it's like the simplest act of love towards someone that you may never even meet that you could possibly do this, this season. Give some of your resources to further the work of helping parents in our city grow into healthier parents. That is never going to be a bad decision. Healthier parents make healthier children, which make healthier parents, which make healthier children. Give to support our ability to care for one another around here and to continue the work of our church community. Now, I am not saying this or making this a point in the sermon to try to coerce you into giving. But instead, what I'm hoping to do is challenge all of us to joyfully choose sack. <laughs> <laughs> joyfully choose self-sacrificial um, love on behalf of others. So if you're feeling like I'm being coercive um, into giving me money, it's not going to me, uh, then give someplace else. That's great. I'm far more concerned. I say this all the time. I'm far more concerned with you actually being generous and choosing self-sacrifice than I am concerned where you give. But it is an opportunity here. So to conclude... We serve a powerful God that turns human power on its head. The infinite became an infant. That's what God's power looks like. That's what is reflected in Mary's song. A God who chooses to act through vulnerable love and not coercion. A God who draws near to the weak and the oppressed and the suffering and the needy. A God who is always, always working to turn suffering to joy. How different would our world look if, if we who claim to follow Jesus actually valued others above ourselves and looked to their interests? If we approached power the same way Christ did, 
with vulnerable and self-sacrificing love to leverage it for the sake of others. I think maybe that is what peace on earth looks like. And I think it wouldn't feel like such a lofty goal. How can you join God in transforming suffering into joy this Advent? Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this season um, where we can intentionally reflect on the mystery and the beauty and the nonsensical reality of the incarnation of Christ, of you becoming your creation. God, I pray that we would, maybe for the first time or, or all over again, be awestruck by the picture of laying down one's power that the incarnation is for the sake of others. And God, I pray that we would be inspired to choose self-sacrifice and to choose looking to others' interests above our own. God, thank you for uh, everything that comes with this season. Thank you for amazing songs. Thank you for Christmas cookies. God, this season could be very lonely and dark and cold. May we be a community that loves one another where no one is alone. We love you, God. Amen.